we have an exciting announcement to make. We've officially joined The Democracy Group, a new podcast network of eight shows dedicated to civic engagement and democracy. We'll be working alongside independent podcasters and organizations like the German Marshall Fund, the Niskanen Center, and the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. Sign up for the newsletter at democracygroup.org. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Julian Brave Noisecat. He's a vice president of policy and strategy at the think tank Data for Progress and is also a prolific writer on climate justice and indigenous issues. He's a member of the Sequepmoc Nation and a descendant of the Statlionk Nation. He has written about the communities that bear the brunt of pollution, and he believes that the solution for the climate crisis lies in public policy and government action. One successful story is the California Climate Investment Fund. It's partly funded by cap-and-trade dollars and has been successful in funding initiatives to adapt to climate change. This could be a model for the Green New Deal or something similar on the federal level. There's a lot of issues of public health and air pollution, particularly because of all the freeways that run through lower-income communities in Oakland and black communities in particular. There's uh, some serious affordability issues. Their big challenge is to try to do this green transformation at the same time as they try to allow people who have been in Oakland for generations to stay and benefit from the investments in this new green economy that's being built in California. We'll be talking about the intersection of social justice and equity within climate policy, what durable climate policy should look like, and what we can learn from the experience of indigenous communities and surviving the loss of their world. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You're a guiding voice on climate change and equity, and you have advised senators, members of Congress, and presidential candidates on racial justice, climate policy, and economic inequality. In fact, you say that social justice concerns are always intertwined with public policy. They are central to climate policy. How so? What I mean when I say that uh, justice and equity are central to climate policy, there's a number of different ways in which you could make this argument. There is a movement that has been built over the last 50 or so years called the environmental justice movement. And essentially what the core critique has been of mainstream environmentalism is that communities of color where pollution happens the most, the communities that have been locked out of uh, the fossil fuel economy and polluted by the fossil fuel economy the most are often not represented at the table uh, when decisions are being made about policy, about how we are going to protect the environment, who gets protected when we implement environmental protections, and where and how we develop jobs and infrastructure. The nuts and bolts of public policy in a lot of ways have locked out communities of color systematically for a very long time. And there's sort of a deep roots to this in the environmental movement, which of course comes out of a conservationist early 1900s conception of nature as this place where we go hike and take 
our families for the weekend rather than as something that is intertwined with society. So the process stuff is really important because ultimately who's at the table really shapes the outcomes of what happens at the table and how different communities are foregrounded in the conversation about how we're going to take on the biggest challenges of our time like climate change. And I'm of the view that the communities that live on the hazardous edge of poverty and pollution, those communities need to be at the table when we discuss climate solutions. So that's the procedural justice piece of this that is very important in my eyes. And then I think politically, we need to be thinking about the distribution of resources and power when we start implementing climate solutions. There are many popular ways in which you could do climate policy, like through a carbon tax that are effectively a middle class tax that will be passed on really quickly from the producers of fossil fuels to the consumers. And that impact will create a social backlash. We saw this in France with the Yellow Vest movement, which was in many ways sort of stoked in response to a moderate carbon pricing proposal put forward by Macron and his government. We saw it very recently in Iran, not because of a climate solution, but because gas prices went up and there was mass social unrest because it's a population that is very used to low gas prices. One of the big concerns that we should have as people who think about climate change is not just what do we do to enact a policy that can you know, get to 51 votes in the United States Senate, but also what kind of policies will be popular and durable. If we implement a climate regime and it gets repealed two or four years later when conservatives retake power, then we failed at our mission. I think we really need to be thinking about what kinds of policy designs and solutions we can be implementing where we could create policy that could endure and help you know, decarbonization chug along across the years and the decades because that is, that is the sort of timescale that we need to be thinking when we're talking about global warming. In this context, talk about the Green New Deal and how that would fit in here in terms of building durable policy. The Green New Deal is a progressive climate platform that aims to take on the twin crises of inequality and climate change in tandem. So it aims to advance social justice and equity at the same time as it, as it aims to decarbonize and adapt society for a warming planet. And so what we've been doing at the think tank that I'm at for the last year or so at Data for Progress is actually building out policy and public opinion research and actual legislation to dive into what a Green New Deal might look like when we take it down from this heady space of political philosophy and principles into when we're actually going to start implementing policy. What this looks like at the end of the day is a climate package that centers government spending on jobs and infrastructure. There is a bill that we worked on at Data for Progress that is a test case for this. 
It aims to retrofit public housing units to decarbonize our public housing stock at the same time as it aims to advance public health goals, so removing lead from those units, and also create tons of union jobs. And we did a sort of deep economic analysis of this Green New Deal for public housing, which was introduced by Representative Ocasio-Cortez and, and Senator Sanders that we want to be implementing and replicating across the country. One of the big challenges that we've faced over the last 40 years of, of democratic politics is that often the environmental movement and the labor movement are divided on the issues. And one thing that we really need to, to do to make, uh, make all of this possible is to bring all of the actors to the table and keep them in uh, sort of the big tent. That's another part of the philosophy of the Green New Deal. It's that we, uh, we're gonna build the political will and support to pass this thing. And then of course, there's the youth movement element of it as well, where um, many of my friends in Sunrise are, are gonna continue to agitate, to, to pressure politicians to do the right thing and take action on what is the greatest environmental and I would say moral crisis of our time. You reported on the Oakland Climate Action Coalition last month, and they're waiting for the Transformative Climate Communities Implementation Grant from the state. How does that work? How can this be potentially be a model for the Green New Deal nationwide? How do they get their funding and what do they seek to do? California is a leader nationwide and also globally in climate policy. It's a kind of complicated story because the origins of California's climate regime, which is primarily a cap-and-trade system, are sort of abhorred on the one hand by environmental justice advocates, but have also created sort of a pile of funding to support frontline communities in a transition to a clean energy economy. It's an approach to climate change where you create emissions credits and then companies are able to purchase the credits. You create a market for emissions credits that's based upon putting a cap on emissions. So this is the way that we tried to do national climate legislation in 2009 through a bill that's called Waxman-Markey, and it's ultimately the uh, system that California started putting in place at the beginning of, of the last decade. What cap-and-trade does on the ground is it concentrates pollution at the sites where big polluters can still afford to pollute. One place where this is happening is in Richmond, California, where you have a big Chevron refinery, and it's created a hotspot of pollution where big polluters can afford to pay the credits, and the way that the market works out is that they end up concentrating more and more of their production at a place like Richmond, which has environmental and public health consequences for the working and communities of color that live near that refinery. So environmental justice advocates were opposed to cap and trade. But when it looked like cap and trade was inevitably going to pass, those advocates who were quite savvy pivoted from opposing cap and trade to trying to make the best out of that system. And what they ended up doing is they advocated really hard to create the public investment model in California that would direct public spending to the communities that are most impacted by climate change. So now California has a California Climate Investment Fund that is funded, at least in part, by the cap and trade program, and that is 
directing resources to help the most impacted communities adapt to climate change and then also develop solutions for decarbonization. Oakland is also a a frontline community. There's a lot of issues of public health and air pollution, particularly because of all the freeways that run through lower income communities in Oakland and black communities in particular. There's uh, some serious affordability issues. Their big challenge is to try to do this green transformation at the same time as they try to allow people who have been in Oakland for generations to stay and benefit from the investments in this new green economy that's being built in California. It's actually a really great model when you think about it, especially if you compare it to what you were talking about earlier, a carbon tax like in France and the Yellow Vest movement and taxing the consumer as opposed to the producer of fossil fuels. So in an ideal world, what are the lessons from California that we can take nationwide? Well, I would say that the biggest one is the investments that can be brought from climate action are an enormous opportunity to advance justice for the communities that have been left out of the fossil fuel economy and polluted by the fossil fuel economy. California has developed its climate programs in this area. Last year, New York State passed the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which placed requirements of uh, about 30% of investments needing to go to communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by climate change and pollution. And so this sort of understanding that we need to be prioritizing investments in those communities is becoming more and more prominent in the conversation about climate change and climate solutions. There's a good opportunity at the national level when we are starting to push for climate legislation here to talk about what are we going to do for the communities that are on the front lines of climate change? And also, secondly, what are we going to do for the workers who are working in fossil fuel industries or adjacent industries that might be displaced when we take action on climate change? And I think that to ensure that this transition is minimally disruptive and actually benefits the working families of this country, I think that those two questions are of very, very high importance. And those constituencies also are ones that you can't see the Democrats moving forward on something like climate legislation. So what is the realistic vision for who gets the jobs and what happens to the people who no longer have fossil fuel jobs? So this is a really tough question the closing of coal plants and and mines and stuff like that has created a bad taste in in the mouth of the workers in those industries, but also a fairly strong reactionary force against climate action. And I think that one of the exciting things about the Green New Deal is that there's more room now for ambition, actually. One of the things that I was most excited about that really flew under the radar in this primary cycle was that when Governor Jay Inslee was thinking about this exact question, 
in their climate plans, they talked about a GI bill for fossil fuel workers. We need a mobilization similar to World War II. We should be talking about and thinking about things like how can we compensate fossil fuel workers entirely for their displaced wages. Obviously, you know, a lot of approaches talk about job training, and those should definitely be part of the equation. But I think that we can think a little bit bigger than that. I would be excited to see Jay Inslee's idea get picked up by more Democrats, particularly on Capitol Hill. And if that sort of thing could get more legs and get more buy-in from the unions and the labor movement. Well, I like the optimistic take on this. If you're an engineer, let's say, in the fossil fuel industry, you definitely can retrain and retool and work on solar or wind, right? But it may not be straightforward for people who are lower on the rungs of extracting oil out of the ground. Yeah, and just a a note of realism at the same time, there was an interesting study that came out that basically said that the solar industry coming online and growing won't fully make up for some of the, the losses of fossil fuel jobs in particular places. At the same time as I'm optimistic about our ability to approach this problem, and I I think that we should be thinking big and ambitiously about it, I also don't want to underplay the extent to which this is a very significant challenge that we will be facing. Well, I want to change tracks a little bit and talk about your work with indigenous communities. You are a senior media fellow for NDN Collective, an organization building power for indigenous peoples. As you mentioned before, of course, the most vulnerable populations are most affected by climate change, including Native American communities. What have you learned there from your exchanges and spending time with communities that were really facing the apocalypse in terms of how it could inform our upcoming apocalypse with the climate. There are two ideas that I've been really wrestling with for the last few years. The first is the cultural and philosophical contributions that indigenous people and our knowledge systems can make to a shifted relationship with the land, the water, and and nature. This was embodied really, really well with the slogan from Standing Rock, which is water is life, right? Essentially what is being called for there is a renewed relationship and understanding of nature and the natural world as essential to providing for us and also as living things themselves, as things that are sacred and and that we need to have a, a deeper connection with. And I think that in the context of an ecological environmental crisis where 80% of the world's biodiversity lives in indigenous territories presently, that idea I think is quite powerful. I think that there is, you know, some real truth and substance to the notion that indigenous peoples have deep insights as to how we can be relating to the environment. If you look at the way that fisheries, for example, are are being managed now in the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Canada, Firstly, indigenous communities have a a growing and significant role in the management of those fisheries, and also the bigger ideas about how the fishery should be managed 
are being informed by older indigenous practices of, of limiting the catch, of managing a, the hatchery and, and the, the fish populations themselves. And then the second piece of it is maybe even more philosophical and, and heady, and that's that indigenous communities, particularly here in the United States and Canada, have survived what historians are increasingly describing as a genocide, but which I would maybe positioned more specifically as the loss of our world. There was a huge rupture in the indigenous community with the arrival of colonists, with the diseases and the wars, the removal of our children from our homes and our families. And this was really an apocalyptic sort of experience that was so powerful that we have intergenerational trauma from this. You can see the impacts of this literally on our DNA. If we accept the premise that the world is itself facing an existential threat with climate change and the ecological crisis, uh, the biodiversity crisis, there may be some broader human lessons that can be lent from indigenous communities to a broader human understanding about what it means to live through an apocalypse and then come out the other side. And actually now we have many native communities that are in a sort of renaissance or are resurging in many ways. So it's a painful story. It's a hopeful story. And I think it's one that if it was paid more attention might help us better wrap our heads around what humanity as a whole is facing right now and what it really looks like and what it does to people to go through such a terrible and, and violent and disruptive and deadly experience. So as an everyday person, what are two things I could be doing practically in my everyday life? I mean, assuming you are a citizen of the United States, I would say voting for Democrats is like maybe the best climate solution that we have. I'm of the mind that climate change is a collective problem, not an individual problem, that our only hope really to take on such an immense uh, global scale problem is through policy and government action. And at this point, the only major political party in the United States that takes that proposition seriously is the Democratic Party. And so I think that voting and civic engagement, activism, all of those things, basically getting involved in the political process are some of the best things that you could do to take on climate change. And also, you know, they create community and hopefully compassion. And those are things that we will also need to take on climate change. One of the things that climate change is going to do is it's going to sort of fray the fabric of society. Greater compassion and empathy and community and human connection are the things that can help hold us together in those sort of trying circumstances. And then I would say also education, the imminent destruction of ecosystems and the displacement of millions of people. When I think about them seriously, they're incredibly troubling. One way that you can, at least personally that I've found, you can sort of grapple with those things is to try to understand them, to better educate yourself. Then at the very least, when you get a little bit more intellectual mastery of these things, I think that there is a, at least a personal power in that. I find it to be grounding and when you're feeling a little topsy-turvy from it all, it can be a good place to recenter yourself. Totally agree. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I would go with two things. The youth climate movement makes me incredibly hopeful, like the Sunrise Movement and the school strikes. I think it's incredibly 
exciting to see so many young people standing up for what's right and for our future. And I think very clearly young people have a particularly powerful moral standing as messengers and activists on this issue. Seeing Greta become the Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2019 and just seeing the immense rise in youth activism on climate change makes me very hopeful that we can actually start to turn the corner on an issue where if we don't turn the corner soon, we're going to be descending into Dante's Inferno. And then I would say also, when I get to go out into indigenous communities, I am always really amazed by the resilience of people and communities and nations who have faced some of the most harrowing circumstances that humanity has ever known and are today reclaiming languages that were forcibly taken from our mouths, basically, that are reclaiming relationships to lands that were often stolen away through war and underhanded dealings. And while that's not the story for literally every Native person, you know, there are a lot of our relatives out there who are really going through it still. I see an emerging sort of younger generation of, of Native people, the kind of people who got involved with Standing Rock, the kind of people who are artists and activists and writers and all that sort of stuff who are doing really remarkable work. The fact that we have come back as a people and as peoples from what we've experienced to achieve all of those things makes me hopeful that people are remarkably persistent and that there can be beauty on the other side of, of immense tragedy. That's really awesome and beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Julian is so well-versed in so many aspects of climate policy, from how it affects the most impacted communities and the success of the California Climate Investment Fund to what will happen to fossil fuel workers in the future when there are no more fossil fuel jobs and the perspective of indigenous communities. I think he's right that we must think big to tackle this existential crisis, and that means we all have to get politically involved, vote for candidates who are pro-climate, and get engaged for clean energy policy. We are definitely nearing a tipping point for change. Still, nothing short of mass mobilization for climate action will bring about decarbonization. Next week, our guest is Leah Stokes, she works on energy, climate, and environmental politics, and is the author of the forthcoming book, Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups, and the Battle over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. We'll be talking about how fossil fuel and utility companies have been aggressive opponents to clean energy policies at the state level and what it will take to break the status quo. I had come to understand that the climate crisis was the biggest threat facing our society and that the energy system was the crucial thing to break the energy crisis. That if we could make progress on cleaning up our electricity system, we would have a fighting chance to tackle the climate crisis. We have to look at the ways that the fossil fuel industry and electric utilities keep the status quo in place. We have to understand the ways that they attack our attempts at progress so that we can fight back. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. 
The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. That's all for this week on Future Hindsight. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to Future Hindsight. And consider sharing us on your social media or with your friends. Word of mouth is the best kind of endorsement we can get, and it helps us produce more great content in the future. Also, if you have the time to rate or review our show on whatever podcast app you use, we greatly appreciate it. It might not seem like much, but those ratings really do help. Also, feel free to drop us a line at hello at futurehindsight.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next Friday with a new show, and we hope you'll be there too.